Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. Have you ever felt a knife cut through human flesh and scrape the bone beneath? You're gonna need a bigger boat. Be my victim. Hello, my name is Austin Torres, and welcome to the Would You Die podcast, the show where we talk about our favorite horror monsters and villains. Today, I am joined by film and television researcher, host of the podcast, Invasion of the Potty People. Please welcome Dr. Vincent M. Gain. I'm a media lecturer, not fucking Tomb Raider. Hello, Austin. (laughs) Hello, listeners of Would You Die podcast it's delightful to be here and is, I, tell me sorry. austin is this one of your um uh have you done many international uh recordings thus far not not many but it's not my first you're not my first friend i've met from the uk which i right. think is very interesting but because of the wonders of technology and the internet i've been able to talk to people far farther than i could ever hope of otherwise <laughs> well yeah that's um that's the other, one of the things about technology the internet on the one hand it brings its problems but it does bring its advantages i know exactly what you mean um being able to talk to people now um you know from all around the world so that it's not as though we're all you know stuck in a cave is great <laughs> and you've made quite a few references to what we're talking about today already (laughs) have i i didn't notice (laughs) well everyone listening this episode is going to be a treat because we're going to take a deep dive into the 2005 neil marshall film the descent that we are yes and um i suspect most people who are familiar with the descent will have will have a strong opinion on it one way or the other and those who haven't seen it well should probably stop listening to this podcast now and go and watch it because we'll be going full spoilers. We'll be going deep into spoilers. And I guess we'll be making lots of sort of, you know, jokes about going deep, going underground, be getting, you know, being penetrative and so on. Or is that a different podcast? Anyway, yes, we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about The Descent. Yeah, before we go down uh, that, I almost said rabbit hole, but that, that would have been too, yeah, that would have been too, too forced of a pun before we go down that monster hole there we go uh (laughs) how long have you been a fan of horror well that's a funny thing um i was thinking about this in preparation um for our chat today um yeah would you believe it listeners we do homework um (laughs) and in some respects a long time and in other respects very recently now one of the interesting things about listening to horror podcasts like yours and various others is they often make me feel old because i hear most people talking about themselves getting into horror when they were probably what far too young for it and that far too young tends to be sort of in the mid 90s and the 2000s and i'm like good grief because i was a very scared kid easily scared kid so when i was at the age of like you know eight, nine, ten, I avoided horror completely. I think the first movie I saw that could properly be described as certainly being horror adjacent is Ghostbusters, which I 
didn't see it at the cinema. I'm not quite that old, but I saw it when it came on television <laughs> in the UK in the late 1980s. And I found the film very frightening. The point, I mean, I only got partway through it, the bit when um, Sigourney Weaver's armchair essentially assaults her. Um, that was it. I checked out and then I couldn't sleep for days afterwards. And I made the tactical error of mentioning this in the schoolyard the day after and was thus subject subjected to much ridicule because oh ghostbusters isn't scary it's funny kids are the cruelest um mm -hmm. and then i remember in the uh, in the 90s as a teenager seeing various horror films on tv i remember seeing misery and the shining uh, the miniseries of it so yeah surprise surprise lots of stephen king um <laughs> But Alien, which I know you're a big fan of. Oh, yeah. However, I never really, but that, oddly, they didn't particularly bother me. I mean, there are certain moments that are striking. You know, the, the, the mallet scene in Misery is a very wince-inducing one, I think. Um, <laughs> but I, the first sort of, and these were all on television and in the safe, homely environment. I usually watch them with my mum, who had no problem with me watching them by that point, so long as I didn't then get too scared to go to bed. So I obviously had matured a bit. But the first sort of proper horror film cinema experience that I remember is probably not uncommon for many people. It was Scream. So I started university in the autumn of 1997. Uh, so Scream at that point would have been a year old, though it may not have come out until more recently in the UK. Um, and I remember my very first week um, as a first year undergraduate, the film society at Keele University, where I studied, did a, f a film screening for freshers, which was free. They weren't free afterwards, but the first one was. And it was Scream, which is a perfect fresher or freshman, as uh, they say in your country, um, a perfect first year um, student movie to see in that context of a, this was in a lecture theater, but it had a proper screen and projector. It was, yeah, it was a very good way of experiencing horror cinema in a way that was very fun and then I got into studying film academically so I was stuck and that meant looking at pretty much all film so along the way I saw other horror films that as they were as they were released I saw Scream 2 and Scream 3 I saw Dog Soldiers I saw The Descent I saw Paranormal Activity um Cloverfield never saw I avoid I, I didn't go for saw or the whole torture porn thing did not appeal and then in 2018 so you know when i'm in my late 30s i discovered horror podcasts such as um the evolution of horror um was my first uh introduction to that and then i've discovered the faculty of horror and there were and others have come along since then and things like what a scream podcast moving pictures mostly horror i listen to some other film podcasts but mostly horror and i think it was because i felt that horror was an area that I was aware of and I had encountered um, horror films as part of my general film consumption. But listening to people talk about horror films is, I think, particularly interesting because as horror fans, we, I will now count myself among them, um, are, we have a certain type of passion. And it's also very welcoming. There's a cliche which says, Horror fans and horror filmmakers are the most, are the warmest, most welcoming people you can find. And that has been my experience. As a result of listening to these various podcasts, I, you know, I joined like Facebook groups. I reached out to people online um, and then went, started going, I went, I went to um, Fright Fest, which is a 
horror film festival that happens in London every August. Um, and I went there by myself, didn't know anybody, but I met other people who I, you know, through through who I'd heard about from these podcasts and I met online and actually could say I came away from Fright Fest with new friends and then went to other events as well. And along the way, saw a lot more horror movies than I would have previously, sort of with the evolution <laughs> of horror, for instance, they um, that podcast has seasons grouped around a particular subgenre. So it's a wonderful education to work your way through slashers ghost stories folk horror um, which i wasn't even familiar with prior to that particular podcast so i'd say and i would now consider myself absolutely a horror fan having been to fry fest multiple times appeared on multiple podcasts um written reviews and doing various studies i still don't do academic study of horror probably because i've got a list of things to write about and i want to get through those first but i'm sure mm -hmm. i probably will at one point um so yeah i uh and what i've found in terms of as a horror fan it is very much a communal aspect i think if you're fans of certain things some fandoms can be quite toxic and have a certain amount of gatekeeping going on uh, but that has not been my experience with horror um, and therefore it's a really nice community to be a part of um, and hey it's how you know what one can meet people like you exactly no that's i love i love all that there's a lot to uh go through because yeah, from gremlins to where you are, uh, not gremlins, from Ghostbusters to where you are now. <laughs> that's it's quite, been a fun few decades. It's a journey for sure. I think the reason why my brain brought up gremlins is because when you mentioned the horror community being quite welcoming and, you know, that's the fact we're talking at this moment is I put out a tweet because I was looking for people to talk about gremlins with me. And you you were one of the people that reached out. Unfortunately, the timing didn't work out, which happens. We're all super busy. But yep. that's why we're talking about the descent today. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If at, if at first you don't succeed, dig deeper. <laughs> we're going to everyone's going to be annoyed at us shoveling all these puns into. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. As we this conversation. The mm hmm. <laughs> Something I noticed from following you on Twitter and kind of looking at your at your website where you have links to like your book and a bunch of your articles is you are a fan of James Cameron. This is correct. Yes, I would actually class James Cameron as my favorite director. I want to talk about our boy James Cameron for a second, because I would say because I have a theory and. As an academic, I want you to kind of see if you agree or disagree. But I have a theory that our best blockbuster filmmakers got their start or they started off with the horror genre. Yeah. OK. I think that's a very valid um, interpretation. Uh, it's a, I think that's a, it's a smart claim. And I can certainly and as soon as you said that, I was thinking like, OK, let's go with this. So in the case of Cameron We've got The Terminator, which certainly works as a horror film. And I suppose one could also say Piranha's Two Flying Killers is, <laughs> if we want to go back earlier. With um, Steven Spielberg, we've got Duel and, of course, Jaws. Yep. Um, Ridley Scott, yep. Alien. Peter Jackson. We've got um, Brain Dead and what's called Bad Taste. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, that works. Um, I mean, of course, there will always be exceptions. Christopher Nolan. Mm. Not so much, I'd say. 
Yeah, um, I think you're right there because maybe because I think the closest he comes to is I think Memento, but that's not a horror movie. I just feel no. like that's the closest in tone to a horror movie he has. But oh, I don't I would think disagree. it's horror. I think the closest Christopher Nolan comes to horror are some moments in Batman Begins. Um, oh, with Scarecrow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Scarecrow is Scarecrow yeah, is scary, good. and there's a point when Batman practically turns into a demon. Um, so no, I wouldn't. Yeah. Say, I would love to see Christopher Nolan do a horror film, but you know whether it would work or not. And of course, other exceptions would be like Stanley Kubrick made one of the most definitive horror films ever, but he didn't start there. He worked right. his way up to it. Um, so I think it's it. I, I what I will say is why I think it's a very interesting claim, and one can certainly do a uh, tracing and using Cameron and Spielberg as um, good examples, I think, and Scott for that matter, um, is to say, if you can do horror effectively, then you are in a, you know how to use the cinematic medium to manipulate audiences. Now, manipulate is a loaded term. And some people will yeah. probably say, oh, I don't like being manipulated, to which I will say, well, if you don't like to be manipulated, don't watch movies. Films manipulate. It's what they do. If you don't like it, then you may want to find another form of entertainment. But in the case of being able to use the camera, use your use your images, use your sound to assemble a piece of work that is going to unnerve an audience, that is going to draw an audience in, and that will invoke empathy in an audience for those going on, for what's going on, because that's... It, um, cinema is all about generating empathy. Uh, the great critic Roger Ebert said cinema is an empathy machine and horror is especially about that. It is about getting one to identify, to empathize with the plight um, of uh, people. I've um, Horror is, of course, a genre that's famously very hard to define. My mm -hmm. definition of horror is that horror is about the, the expression of victimhood. You put the experience of the victim on screen and the viewer therefore must empathize with them. And a bad horror movie doesn't do that. So the bad horror movie will just have you go like, yeah, and person's getting stabbed. Um, am I supposed to care? Because, oh, shall I do the washing up? That is, is a bit effective horror brings the, brings the viewer in. And I think that, yes, looking at Jaws, where there is, you know, you as the viewer are given this sense of fear them for the characters on screen whether that's whether that's the people who are on the beach and then going into the water or later on when you've got the three men in the boat that is a perspective on you know generating the audience's feel for that and the fact that nearly 50 years later you know some people are still scared of the sea for that reason is testament to it i can actually see you've got a jaws poster uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> on your on your uh, wall there i um yeah, I mean, just to sidetrack slightly onto Jules, you don't object to tangents, do you? Oh, I love tangents. Good, They're good, my good. favorite. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I actually avoided seeing Jules for a long time, not because I was afraid of it, but because I objected to it for political reasons, because I was a very keen, um, I've always had a strong con sense of conservation and um, love for wildlife. So the notion of, I, I knew that Jaws presented a very negative and indeed totally inaccurate position on sharks. And for that reason, I avoided it. And then one day I realized, well, whether I see the movie or not, it's not going to make any difference. So I may as well see it. And did. And what do you know? It's a bloody masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, I think that 
the development of filmmakers who start off is in the areas of horror it's and of course many filmmakers do start out that way and it's a common area for independent filmmakers and i think that's largely because it's a tends to be fairly straightforward um it's a it's not to say that it's simple but it's primal horror yeah. works on a primal level it works on a visceral level if filmmakers can get that right then that can set them up very well i think for their later work and then some you know go into doing other things james cameron has predominantly stayed in the area of science fiction without necessarily using horror elements but has also ventured into areas of like you know comedy uh, and um, historical romance but he tends to come back to the science fiction which of course is tied in very much with horror and spielberg has gone mm -hmm. all over the place yeah <laughs> um, but it is always interesting to note when he wants to really ratchet up the tension he knows how to do it there are some incredibly tense moments in jurassic park in war of the worlds and mm -hmm. in his in scare quotes serious films like munich uh, and bridge of spies there are some properly tense moments in there and i think that's so if you can do horror well it's a sign that you could probably do other things I love the validation that you gave me for for my little theory because I'm uh <laughs> because some other filmmakers that I think kind of help us go down that route is I think Sam Raimi is a really good example. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when you, you when you're getting that those uh, Marvel dollars, I think you're doing pretty well for yourself. But totally. you know, to see him doing MCU Doctor Strange, but he coming from the Evil Dead, which had like a couple thousand dollars for that to be made. Uh, I think that's such a great journey to watch him. And um, not to forget the others sort of in between things like Dark right. Man and The Gift, obviously the, the first Spider-Man trilogy. Um, Definitely a climb for sure. Of course. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so again, it does come back to the sense of how best to manipulate the audience. And if you can manipulate yes. them in a sense of fear, you can manipulate them with a sense of excitement. I mean, Spider-Man 2 has some visual motifs straight out of Evil Dead 2. Um, so, yeah, yep. that's um, again, it's a great way to start your to it's a great way to hone your skills and learn your craft. Exactly. We mentioned a little bit Ridley Scott with Alien. And I think by talking about James Cameron, you you also kind of invoke the xenomorph because james cameron did one of the best sequels ever made in aliens no kidding um <laughs> i think aliens an interesting segue into the descent because for me i and i'm no i'm not the first one to say this i know this is a pretty popular takeaway but alien and the descent are really similar movies yeah actually you know it's weird i've never made that connection but you're absolutely right they are they um i mean they both take place in the dark for a lot of the time. Um, mm -hmm. They both involve a small group of characters being picked off. Um, they both make some, they both have a combination of stalking and gore and body horror. They have, they make a lot of use of suspense. They have a lot of, well, obviously horror film suspense, duh, <laughs> um, as well. And similarly jump scares. And yeah. And, and they all, and they have some interesting thing, ideas around um, roles, around gender. Um, yeah. They have a lot in, and they both have some pretty scary creatures in them. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. 
uh, something I like that connects the two of these films, and anytime I get to connect Alien to another horror movie, I get super excited. But um, I think there's a sense of uh, a claustrophobia in both of these films, being trapped on a spaceship and being trapped in a cave with these tight, dark, tight, narrow spaces. And I think there's kind of a fear of the unknown. They're trapped in, in the descent. They're trapped in caves They that are undiscovered. No one's ever been down there. And they find creatures that no one has ever seen before. And aliens, the same thing. You're trapped in space. What's more unknown than space? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair point. And in, in neither, neither in space nor underground, can anyone hear you scream? Oh, that um, was good. <laughs> that <yeah>. was good. <laughs> Having said that, I don't entirely, I think that I see where you're coming from. Yes, there are certain parallels, but I think there are also some important distinctions. Yes, um, yes. I heard this interesting dis- discussion once about, this was talking about alien and aliens. And this described that in alien, they described the space as be- the space that the characters operate in as vast. And while they are trapped in this spaceship, um, I think of the Nostromo as this, I don't think of it as claustrophobic. I think of it as cavernous. It's described as like a haunted castle. And mm-hmm. I think that although some of the corridors, yes, are narrow, and there's the you know the great sequence when Dallas is making his way through the um, uh, um, through the air vents, the air ducts where which leads to one of the film's best jump scares, the <laughs> yeah moment. <laughs> At the same time, I think it's interesting that the space is, one that they could move around in and it is threatening because it's so vast. And the fact that then, of course, we have the alien planet, which is, you know, again, very vast, and the alien ship where they find the eggs and the space jockey again, um, and of course, space itself. It gives a sense, I think, of a, um, whereas in the descent, it is very much about the claustrophobia. But what is comparable? And I did a thing a while ago where I had a, I thought about what are my top five scariest films my my frightful five and i realized <laughs> an important thing because i included the descent and alien and um jaws uh, were all in there and i think a, and a key element among this was the environment it is mm. a horrific a terrifying environment space yep okay totally uh unsympathetic the ocean very threatening but of all of them i think one of the the reasons, and I guess you know, this is part of what we're talking about. One of the reasons I find the descent such an absolutely magnificent and terrifying uh, horror film is that the environment it takes place in is as hostile as they come. If you are in space, then you are only there because you've got a certain amount of equipment to make it be- livable for you. And generally, movies that are set in space feature ways of have so many have a certain number of fail safes you know and the it's it's ironic i suppose the number of times that the threat of space is rarely the one that is most prominent in um in a space set movie except obviously there are exceptions like you know apollo 13 or gravity yeah. which wouldn't probably be described as horror films if you've got a horror film set in space it's because you're in space whoops and you've encountered something and you wish you hadn't whereas in the and and similarly, if you're at sea, well, if you stay on the boat and you'll be all right. Oh dear, the 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 the, the, the sea beastie is attacking the boat, and now we're in trouble. Well, can you swim? You know, but I feel that in the descent, the cave, the cavern system, where our 
characters go, and I guess we should probably do a synopsis, um, mm. is the most terrifying environment I can think of. Put it this way, prior after seeing The Descent, I decided I never want to go caving. Okay, I've just, it does not appeal. Like, yeah. no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm going to stay um, up top. <laughs> but um, yeah, I suppose we should probably um, uh, run through what the descent involves. One year <laughs> after the death of her husband and daughter, Sarah, accompanied by um, Juno, Beth, Rebecca, Sam and Holly, uh, go on a caving trip um, in the Appalachian Mountains. They go deep underground, get trapped and discover that there are some very nasty creatures lurking underground and steadily they die. There you go. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, well, this is one of the things I think that um, the best, I, I'm increasingly of the opinion that some of the best um, films are have simple stories. You don't need, mm -hmm. uh, unless the a complex story is part of the purpose of this, like if it's a mystery, you don't need a complex story tell a simple story well and i think that's a winning formula so yeah the descent came out in 2005 it's written and directed by neil marshall who is his second film and stars to be fair a bunch of actors who i haven't seen in anything else um <laughs> shauna mcdonald natalie mendoza alex reed saskia Mulder, Iana burring nora jane noon but all of which um well, we can talk a bit more about Neil Marshall as we go. And I will say, you know, just straight off the bat, this is, for me, the most terrifying film I've ever seen. It is my, the top of my Frightful Five um, is, yeah, is The Descent. I remember when I first saw The Descent, I was, I think, late high school or early college. So it was probably near the peak of my horror curiosity. And I saw it and it scared the shit out of me. I saw it very recently for the first time since then, and it still scared the shit out of me. So it oh, definitely yeah. holds up. And I'm like, I know what's coming. And I'm still scared shitless. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I saw it in the... Did you see it in the cinema originally? No. I yeah. was too young when it came out because I was in 2000... Sorry. I didn't... It came out in 2005 and I was 10 at the time. So Ooh, you young things <laughs> <laughs> that would have been too that would have been too uh much I think for 10 yes. year old me agreed <laughs> um yeah well I, I saw it in the cinema in 2005 and you know it was the it's one of the very few films that's actually caused me to scream out loud in the cinema um we'll talk about probably the moment that had us both <laughs> um, jumping was out of our skins. Um, and I watched it a few times up after that um, on uh, disc. And I watched it again the other day on uh, on streaming uh, to prepare for today's discussion. And yeah, it works every time. The atmosphere, the sense of imposing doom, um, yeah. a deep sense, you know, that's, you know, from on an emotional level, there's a deep sense of sadness and trauma. I mean, there's a, you know, there's, it opens with a tragic, with a very tragic accident, and it but it, and it always continues to, you know, enthrall and terrify me. And I, when I, whenever I watch a movie, I do a quick little like tw Twitter summary of it, and I describe mm. the descent on my most recent viewing as a tense, visceral, claustrophobic nightmare of trauma, tragedy, and deep, deep terror. And I can still say that it holds up that after multiple viewings, yeah. and it's nearly twenty years old, and. It still manages to be very impressive, 
Although, I will say, with a wider appreciation of how cinema works, and particularly in terms of storytelling, there are there is an aspect of it that does not impress me as much as it used to. But uh, we can come on to that. All righty. All righty. Something I kind of want to talk about a little bit, as you mentioned earlier, The Descent having a very uh, simple story, a simple plot. And I agree. But I think what I really like about that fact is because its plot is so streamlined and so tight, it allows the film to be complex in other areas. And I think you mentioned it a little bit, but the relationships and the dynamics between the characters, that's where like the meat and the potatoes of The Descent really is. And I, when I rewatched it, I was like, I don't remember the drama being like the tea being this hot. Like <laughs> there is because uh, I think when you don't watch it for a few years, you remember the jump scares and you remember the tension. But I forgot how personal it get. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that. Well, OK, well, since we've come to that, that's where I will say what we have are these six characters. And I will say it's really pleasing um, that this is in a very effective um horror movie where there are no prominent male characters it's about these six women and it is really great i think to see a film um, about women it's worth noting that the director neil marshall writer director as part of his preparation for this um, he did spend time um, working on the script um, this is according to imdb trivia um, working with his with female friends to make sure to sort of get in a sense of the of women talking to each other. So it wasn't a man writing women, although it is a man writing women. It was a man who had done his research writing women. And, you know, I will say, you know, Neil Marshall is a very uneven director. I think his career post The Descent has, well, gone downhill. (laughs) But in this case, I think it all fits together very nicely. Because so what we have, if we look at the six cent, six characters there is a male character paul who is um sarah's husband um but he dies in the opening scene so whatever so we have sarah played by shauna mcdonald at the center and so she's our protagonist who's yes in the opening scene husband paul and her uh, five-year-old daughter jessica they are killed in a horrendous accident we see them uh driving along and that is the film's first big jump scare as this other vehicle crashes into their car and it's oh god um, it's horrendous. And then Sarah wakes up and it becomes abundantly clear that her husband and daughter are dead. So, you know, it's a hell of an opening in that respect. Sarah's best friend is Beth, played by Alex Reed, And they also have their friend Juno, played by Natalie Mendoza. In terms of the drama, it um, it actually is hinted at in the first scene. And it later becomes clear that Juno was having an affair with Paul. So nice one, Juno. You were having an affair with Sarah's husband. Aren't you the best friend ever? Um, and then they've got their other friends, um, sisters, Rebecca and Sam, played by Saskia Mulder and uh, Mayanna Burring, respectively, who are also in that opening scene when we see them whitewater rafting. Um, and then when they come together in the Appalachians to go caving, we meet Holly, played by Nora J. Noon, who is described as Juno's protege. Now, the dynamics between them are interesting because Sarah and Beth are, you know, besties you know that's made very clear they are really good friends and they're and and it's lovely watching them together because beth has obviously been with sarah over this past year helping sarah to deal with her trauma and one of the best most sort of touching moments in the film is when they're and also one of the most terrifying they're crawling through this 
fairly narrow tunnel. Um, and this is the point where I'm thinking like, no, I never want to go caving. <laughs> I'm not normally claustrophobic, but yikes. And Sarah okay. gets stuck. So Beth comes back to help her. She breathes. She tells her to breathe. She tells her to. And she makes this lovely comment, like the worst thing that could happen to you has already happened. So it's no sense of handling um, Sarah with kid gloves. She is there to do whatever Sarah needs. Juno, on the other hand, is just always trying to make things in inverted commas better, but as, as a real knack for making things worse. Juno's always trying to take control. Um, she, as far as she's concerned, Juno knows best. And I think we probably, and again, this makes it more relatable. We probably all know someone like that. I certainly do. Who are like, uh, oh yeah, it'd be all right this way. And it never, and they don't necessarily come across way of saying, oh, I know best, and that's that. But it's more subtle. It's sort of way of right. saying, do you know what your problem is? You're always right, as far as you're concerned. So that sort of those. The interplay between those three, I think, is really significant. It's almost like, so you've got Sarah at the centre and then Beth's the good friend and Juno's the bad friend, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and it all ends up, and the whole thing ends up being um, Juno's fault, because, for which we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, and then as far <laughs> as the others are concerned, um, Holly is perhaps, you know, the most thinly sketched, but it's made very clear that, you know, she has an interest in, uh, she's a thrill seeker, you know, she jumps off buildings, apparently, and uh, doesn't and wants to do things that are adventurous, but not to the point of being reckless, unlike Juno. Um, and then Rebecca and Sam have a lovely sort of, um, you know, sisterly um, relationship. And um, so I think that they are a warm group of characters and you can feel something for all of them. Um, and that's yeah. a really nice dynamic. But here's where the, the one problem, uh, let's get this problem out of the way, you know, because okay. we're generally going to be positive. But my one problem with the film, and this only came up really on my most recent viewing is the affair that juno had an affair with paul and this becomes a motivating factor for what we see in the film and i don't think we need it because the way it comes up is um we see it at the in early on that's like juno and paul well that's some interesting looks between them then when we actually get into the but and then we get when we get into the cave juno has a um has a pendant which Beth, who clearly had her suspicions, Beth discovers that this was a gift from Paul. And then come the finale, Sarah injures Juno, presumably um, out of revenge. But the thing is, we didn't need that because there's enough stuff within the actual um, framework of the plot to make to, to lead up to that sort of final confrontation between Sarah and Juno. Because A, Juno planned this trip. So she tells everyone, right, let's all get together and go for this caving trip. And I have, we're going into this place called Borum Caverns and I've booked us a flight plan. Um, as they say, everything is perfectly fine. Then it turns out, oh, we're not in Borum Caverns. Juno has taken us on this reckless, very dangerous trip. And now we're all stuck underground because after the sequence in the tunnel that um, Sarah gets stuck in, that tunnel actually collapses. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're stuck underground. And Juno quite accurately says, if we stay here, we'll die. Uh, yeah, thanks to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's the first thing. So Juno got them all into the situation. Then there comes the point where they are, where they encounter the cave's residents, referred to uh, as the crawlers, who are among the most, I remember one review describing them as um, the bastard offspring of Nosferatu and Gollum, <laughs> which I think is a fair description. Yeah. I mean, these things are horrendous. So the crawlers attack. By this point, Holly is already injured um, and they get her quite easily. 
Juno fights back. She uses one of her ice axes and you know, successfully manages to um, kill one. And then she swerves and to strike at who's coming behind her. And she actually hits Beth. So it's a very, it's another very horrible, visceral moment as you see this axe like sticking through Beth's throat. And oh, good grief. That's horrendous. Yeah. And then um, <laughs> Beth doesn't die. She's dragged off back to the crawler's larder where Sarah has found herself as well. And then Sarah has to actually kill Beth, you know, finish her off as it were. And then finally, when then Sarah and Juno encounter, meet up again later and sarah asks juno what about beth and juno doesn't come clean although beth has already told sarah that she's you know mortally wounded because of juno and then in the final confrontation as i said sarah wounds juno and ostensibly this is his revenge for the affair but it could just as easily have been sarah believes well believes juno is responsible and not owning up to the death of beth and that's enough so I feel yeah. that the the affair stuff, it's not necessary, and I think it's a bit reductive. So when I, I always used to consider The Descent as a five-star film, I now consider it four and a half. So for that extra unnecessary element, I knock off just half a star. I still think it's magnificent, but it's better directed than I think it is written. I think that's fair. I'm still going to honor my five-star review of it because because for me, I have not seen it nearly as many times. But it's still, I don't know. I could, that's some, I think you're right about the affair being reductive, but that's something I can easily forgive when the rest of it is so good. Fair enough. Because uh, for me, I'm one of those people where it's like, when I think of scoring movies in my brain, how how we do this, I don't know, because art doesn't equal math, but we do it anyways. <laughs> but for me, I like to think of it as adding stuff instead of like, I didn't like that, so I'm taking something away. I'm more like, I like this, so I'm adding. So I start from zero. Not everyone, do and everyone's different, and that's cool. That's fine. And sometimes if I don't like a movie, then that's when I'll do the takeaway. So I'm not even consistent. But why I bring that up is because I think that, like we were talking about, the horror elements between the monsters, the setting, I think the characters are um, strong enough, the Central three being the strongest for sure. I think you're right about Holly being the most thinly sketched. But I think there's so much there where I'm like, whatever critiques and quibbles I have with it just don't really matter to my overall response to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel kind of kind of rambly of me. <laughs> well, that's, you know, I think that's absolutely very sensible response because it shows you know the way we the way we respond to these to these uh, products to these texts is and why would it be consistent because it would every reaction we have is going to be subjective it's going to be yeah. specific and individual um and i think that um yeah you're right i mean art doesn't we don't art isn't maths but we do it we treat it that way um and yeah. it is a matter <laughs> of you know what do we do? i'm increasingly of the opinion that good and bad are not helpful terms and what's more interesting is what works and what doesn't and clearly for both of us the descent works very well oh, yeah. um just there happens to be an element of it that i find just detracts from it just a little just a little but again i don't you know it doesn't stop the film being terrifying in any way right. shape or form um i mean shall we uh, just uh, address the elephant in the room of the um of the best, one of the best jump scares in cinema history. 
I'm going to be so disappointed if we're thinking of different ones, but I really do not think we are. I believe <laughs> we're both talking about the, uh, it's night vision, right? The night vision camera. It's night vision, right? Yes, it's um, the green. One, ho- yeah. Yeah. Holly has brought um, a video camera with her. You know what? She's an influencer before influencing was a thing. <laughs> she, <laughs> yeah. She documents her um, her experiences. It, you know, if you want to see a more recent um, update of that character, I recommend the reverse of the descent almost, which is Fall, um, a film that was out in uh, 2022, where a couple of young women climb up a 2000 foot high pole, as you do. <laughs> If the dis- the descent is the most you know claustrophobic, then um, fall is the most acrophobic. I think it is fear of heights. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So if you're afraid of if you're afraid of heights, don't watch fall. And if you're afraid of enclosed spaces, don't watch the descent because <laughs> they will fuck you up. Mm-hmm. And if you're, yeah, you're afraid abs- of both, avoid both. <laughs> Indeed. You know, watch. I don't know Halloween. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> If you're scared of big men with of men with big knives well very sensible <laughs> we all are yeah um yeah. anyway but yes yeah, so holly <laughs> has her camera and um because they're you know they're trapped in this cave and they don't know which way to go the camera has an infrared setting which they put on and panning across um the faces of the other ones and the brilliant thing is as soon as we see the infrared footage we kind of know something nasty is going to appear in this viewfinder isn't it and we know what's coming and it still works. And yes, we are talking about the same moment when the first time we see a crawler, clearly they've been glimpsed before, but we yeah. see this thing that is horrific in every possible way, standing right behind one of our heroines. And that is the moment that, yeah, ha- or that makes me scream out loud. You know, or, or, to yep. be fair, my last feeling is more of a, which is crazy because <laughs> I knew it was coming, but it still works. It is perfect jump scare the you know there's a moment in the exorcist 3 that often is held up as the best jump scare but yeah i've got to say crawler in the viewfinder um that's the one for me and from the sounds of it for you as well well i think it's a contender for sure if if this was a discussion of the best jump scares in any film that at at the very least should be top five Agreed. I actually wrote a piece. It's a contender. (laughs) Yeah. I wrote a piece for the website um, Indie Film Library last Halloween about five great jump scares. And I put this one in. Uh, We can put a link to it in the show notes. So yes, yes, for sure. But yeah, I think I I think we're in total agreement. It is one of the greatest jumps, if not the greatest jump scare. And I think I think it's one of those moments that elevates the descent from not just being a good film, but a film that will stand the test of time. Agreed. Yeah, I think that's true. It's because, and I think what's fascinating about the way that the way that jump scare comes, if you go into the movie, if you'd read anything about it, then you know that there's going to be some kind of monster in the film. But what I have always said is extraordinary is that first time I saw it and every time since, although I knew that was coming, and we get these sort of you know glimpses of the crawlers. I was already terrified just by the cave, by the environment. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, largely down to the way that the film is shot and especially the way it's lit. Interestingly, many of the sequences, it actually had the actors lighting themselves. So rather than being external light. So we are literally alongside there with them. We are we only see what they do. Because bear in mind, this is all sets. None of this was actually filmed in a real cave. Um, that would have been far too dangerous and expensive. So it's all oh, sets. Yeah. But you wouldn't know it. You know, the level of 
you know, the lighting and the cinematography by Sam McCurdy and the editing by John Harris, they are really, really amps up the tension and the sense of claustrophobia of being there. And then when the crawler appears clearly, it's, I think that's one of the reasons it's a proper scream jump scare because it's a release it's a release of oh oh god this has been so tense i ah oh, oh, I'm, I'm feeling incredibly hemmed in i'm practically in this cave myself so and i know there's something coming there's something nasty there's something coming ah there it is and it's in the one it's kind of a release and interestingly the film then kind of shifts a bit and the pace gets i think faster um the editing pattern speeds up because we're getting more sort of action sequences set pieces yeah. um, as the crawlers attack and they attack in ways that are visceral and gory and horror horrific which is appropriate but yeah i think the the way that jump scare is placed within the structure of the film it's you know, it's perfectly um positioned um and you know and it does kind of allow for this transition into the second part of the film worth mentioning there are a few others um i yeah. mentioned the one at the beginning when um there's the car accident there's also one um when the, the six women are at their cabin before they head off um to to the cave where sarah wakes up and she's um standing by the window and then suddenly this metal pipe shoots through the window at her it's and then she wakes up because it's a dream but yeah that moment always makes me jump as well and then there are a couple of other points where the crawlers appear out of nowhere it's like ah there they are again and death, <laughs> um, the death of, um, yeah sam for instance she dies um at a point like that she's making her way across a chasm and you know that's scary enough as well it's like oh right so it's not enough that it's a really you know that it's so we're in a cave um we're being chased by these monsters and now oh look we could also fall to our deaths so she's making her way across and then looks up and ah crawler which slashes her throat so it's another scare with another jump scare like that um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's a great balance, I think, of suspense and release. Uh, something we've talked about a little bit already is director Neil Marshall, who I want to compare and contrast what I think are two very different, but they have some similarity uh, films of his is this one and his first movie, I believe, which is Dog, Dog Soldiers. Soldiers. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think it's interesting because they're both movies about small um smaller not tight-knit but kind but like small groups of people out of their element facing off against creatures <laughs> that you have no hope of surviving but dog soldiers very testosterone heavy and the descent is very uh not <laughs> is it estrogen heavy <laughs> uh yeah that's the word i'm looking for <laughs> yeah okay so yeah well yes sure um the uh, the tagline for dog soldiers was um six men full moon no chance and the tagline for the descent could have been six women one cave no chance <laughs> yeah yes i agree there is um this and it's indicative i think of an up and of marshall at the time as an up-and-coming filmmaker um, and you know these are these are independent films. Um, if you look at uh, the the Descent, for instance, is a Celador production. Celador is a British um, TV company sponsor that you know largely paid for this particular film, and they benefit from being tight, contained, having a small number of characters, and um, both involve um, our small groups of characters out in a wilderness. You know, they're out yeah. in a, they're a place far away from. Um, civilization and in the case of and dog soldiers works i think by having a 
a combination of, on the one hand, we've got these intrepid soldiers, because they are soldiers. It's kind of surprising. There, are, I don't think there have been other examples of werewolves versus soldiers. It's a brilliant idea. Um, oh, yeah. It works very nicely. And yet the point is they're completely out of their depth against these werewolves. But to be fair, I don't think that's covered by training in the British Army or any army for that matter. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and then there's an interesting thing that they, and a lot of it is uh, takes place in a farmhouse um, where they all sort of take up refuge and it turns into a bit of a, a siege uh, movie like, say, Night of the Living Dead. And The Descent, similarly, it's about this group of, you know, small group of characters together in an environment where they are completely out of their <laughs> literal depth, as it were, deep underground. What I think is an interesting contrast between the two films, though, is tone. Yes. Because Dog Soldiers works kind of as a horror, if not comedy, certainly a romp. A lot of, I mean, a lot, I mean, there's quite a bit of witty banter. Um, it's in fun. There. Yeah, it's fun. Exactly. It's a fun film. And it's, although it's jumpy and it's, gory i don't know if i'd call dog soldiers particularly scary whereas the descent has a lot more suspense and ah right good this brings me to a point i wanted to talk about in particular mm -hmm. the descent um is also incredibly bleak yes however i am aware that there are different endings to the descent tell me when you've watched it because i know that the the two endings one is uk and one is us when you've watched The Descent, what is the last scene? She gets out of the cave and then she's in the she's in the truck. And yep. if I remember correctly. Does it end with her driving away? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Because I looked this up actually. I found the US ending on YouTube. So Sarah having um stabbed uh Juno in the leg so she can has to fight off the crawlers herself. Um <laughs> Sarah gets away. She falls down, she falls down in um, another hole, but is able to climb out and she finds the cars and she drives away and the credits roll. Yeah. It's like the human bones she has to crawl out, right? If I remember mm. correctly. Yeah. Yeah. But the point is she gets away. Yes. Not so in the UK cut. Oh. Okay, right. You didn't know this. This is this No, is... no, no. <laughs> okay, well, spoiler for the um UK version. In the UK version, so that happens. Sarah escapes, she gets into the car, she drives away. She pulls over the side of the road turns back and then she sort of has this spectral vision of um, Juno, the implication being that she's going to be haunted by this, except then she wakes up and she wakes up still in the cave. Oh. And she has a sort of hallucination of her daughter, Jessie, uh, coming towards her. Um, and this is this is masterful direction by Marshall. So Jesse puts the, and I didn't realize this little detail until I read it on the IMDb trivia. So Jesse approaches Sarah with his birthday cake with five candles because she was, it was her birthday, well, would have been her birthday when she died, puts down the cake and the camera pans out. And then the flame of the birthday cake changes into Sarah's flaming torch. But we just see very briefly the cake again. And this time there are six candles on it. And then the camera pans out and it's just Sarah with her burning torch in the cave. And we hear the sounds of the crawlers approaching and the camera pulls out, pulls out, pulls out and the credits roll. So, like I say, bleak as fuck. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is a bleak ending up with the mist. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, wow. Are, yeah. So, no. So, in, in, in the UK cut, um, Sarah doesn't escape. She dies underground along with everyone else. And the cake, having originally five candles, and then we see it for a moment, has six. There were six in their party, and now all of them are dead. 
I so wonder. So what happened was there were test screenings yeah. um, in the US, but um, the distributors thought it was too bleak an ending, so required a change. So okay, fine, we'll cut. We'll finish it a moment earlier. I wonder the reason, the reason why they felt that for the United States audience, because well, two thousand five. Okay, I think I know the reason. That was pretty fresh post nine eleven. Yeah. And we, if I remember correctly, because like I said, I would have been 10 at the time. There wasn't that much. I feel like the super bleak stuff was avoided by U.S. audiences at the time. So because I think of the same year, something that would have been considered very bleak would have been Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. But that has a very nice, happy ending even though the rest of the film is not, <laughs> that one has to be wrapped up in a tight little bow. And then, mm -hmm. okay, it's not that bad at the end of it. And I think that might have been the trends of the United States audience at the time. Yeah, although it is interesting to note, I mentioned earlier, film that came out the year before, in 2004, which I didn't see at the time, but I have now, which does have an incredible, which does have a similarly bleak and, and terrifying ending is Saw. Yeah, so what am I talking about? Well, Why would no, we no, do I, think, <laughs> I don't think you. I think you're right. I think I think you know. It's a. I think it was probably a matter of because Saw was, I think, even lower budget. Um, it was probably you know maybe it maybe it it was already its its distribution may have been smaller right. anyway, and therefore less of a worry. Well, it's like it's only going to particularly play to certain audiences anyway. So plus, it's more cons it's kind of more consistent and. Then again, it does allow that ending is is is, is essential really for the twist because Saw ends with this major twist and then the ending right. follows on directly from that. And the descent, you can narratively um, have it ending the way that the U.S. version does. Um, plus, of course, that also allowed a sequel of the descent yeah. too, which I confess I have never seen. I haven't seen it either, so we don't need to talk about it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, I suspect that the descent was perhaps being aimed at a broader audience gotcha. uh, not least because maybe when it was released because i think it was a summer release rather than halloween so it was you know so perhaps it was an idea that well let's not make it a bit not make it quite so grim <laughs> right and i do think overall i for me personally i think the descent is a far more bleak film than saw and i'm not saying saw isn't bleak I think Saw is, but there's also kind of a, a, for me, there's kind of like a fun mystery aspect to Saw. That's true. Whereas The Descent is more sort of relentlessly, things are going to get worse. Oh, yes, they're going to get worse. Oh, look, they got worse. And it keeps getting right. worse. <laughs> exactly. Whereas I don't think the overall tone of, the, of Saw gets that, gets as bleak. I'm not trying to say it's not bleak because Saw is pretty fucking bleak but <laughs> and um and i th also think in the ending of saw dr gordon's fate is open-ended which i guess the True. sequel is closed whereas at least well well i think he gets away like you could say stuff like that not oh wow they all died like book yeah. closed <laughs> yes indeed yeah so if you had to rank um like three very bleak endings now you know what uh, what it is. The UK ending of the descent, Saw, and since I mentioned it, the Mist. Yeah, I guess Saw <laughs> would be the least bleak of them. But which is bleaker out of the descent and the Mist? My gut's telling me to say the Mist, partly because, well, I don't want to spoil the Mist for anyone who hasn't seen it. 
uh, in this episode, in a different episode, I'll have no problem spoiling it. But so I'm going to be careful with my words just in this scenario. I think one, I've seen it. I have not seen the UK ending to the descent. So that's part of the reason why I'm going to go with the mist. But in avoiding spoilers, I think the end of the mist is putting yourself in the character in the shoes of that character who has to do the unimaginable and for it to be for nothing. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. Yeah. Like that's, I suppose it's a matter yeah. of how you sort of feel about them because the ending of the right. mist is like a, it's like a gut punch or a kick in the teeth. And whereas I feel the ending of the descent is like a, it's almost this weird sense of suction. I remember when I saw mm-hmm. it back in 2005, the first time I almost felt like at the end of it, I was like, Oh God! <laughs> like it, it, it was almost like the way. Here's a really weird comparison. Um, the the moment in Avengers: Infinity War after Thanos snaps his fingers and the survivors realize what's happened, and Captain America just sits down and goes, "Oh God!" It's yeah. kind of like that. That feeling, um, as you see, yeah, that's how I felt. And I remember coming out of the cinema that day. And just sort of walking around to get home with a slightly dazed expression on my face. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate that um, shout out to Avengers Infinity War, because say what you will about the Marvel movies at that time. Like, I didn't think Marvel would have the balls to do something like that ending. And mm-hmm. most I don't think. Well, us horror fans, we we can take a bleak ending or two and like and it'll hurt us in the right ways. I don't think mainstream audiences ever want a bleak ending. So for the Marvel movie to do that, even though I think we all knew it was going to be resolved the year after, it still took some guts to do to begin with, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's um, kind of like the uh, um, or use another weird comparison, like the moment in Toy Story 3 when the toys genuinely looks like they're going to go into the incinerator, you know, because it was the timing of it was hand was handled just so well. I think they're not, they're not, are they? Yeah. Okay. Phew. Um, yeah. So yeah, never under, never underestimate the um, benefits of pushing your audience because right. I think it's the, it's when you, when films push their audience that can create some of the most memorable experiences. And I agree because I feel like a lot of films, I was about to say these days, but I think it's the case for a a while now, is I think a lot of films are made that don't give the audience enough credit. Yeah, agreed. Or try, or in some, yeah, try to, yeah, there's a sense of entertainers have to, to an extent, anticipate what their audience want. But the truth is we don't know what we want. Um, So I understand that it's going to be, it's always a crapshoot it's always going to be hit and miss you will not necessarily make it work and sometimes we'll come out you know we'll see something and um it will not work because it hasn't put enough faith in the audience and other times you know it does i think i mean i mentioned before about the problem with i think the descent having a slight bit of overwriting i think overwriting is a problem that affects a lot of mainstream particularly blockbusters um, mm-hmm. when i look at the blockbusters of last year i feel that um the ones that were less successful were the ones that overcomplicated what was going on. There's a case with Black Adam, Morbius, 
Avatar The Way of Water and most of all um, Jurassic World Dominion, which was like, what? Why, uh, why are we doing all this? Come on. Um, whereas the blockbuster that got it absolutely right by being a simple three-act structure, we do the thing, we do the thing, we do the thing, is Top Gun Maverick, which, you know, simplicity is, um, you know, in the words of Dr. Lecter, um, simplicity, Clarice. <laughs> um, and again, the, you know, I think the descent works best when it's being straightforward. And, you know, Neil Marshall's career since then, I think, has largely suffered from being overcomplicated and trying to do too much. Uh, trying to say, right, so this movie is going to do this, it's going to do this, and it's going to do this, and this. And this. <laughs> could you not? Could you just do like, you know, one or two things well rather than multiple things badly? Like, um, yeah, I mean, I saw and recently reviewed uh, Marshall's most recent film, um, The Lair, which, ugh, it's a mess. A few years prior, The Reckoning, it's a mess. He did some episodes of... Uh, Hannibal and Game of Thrones, which were fine, but they're in a wider range. And then also his films after The Descent, Doomsday and Centurion. There's, you know, they suffer from having more than they need. Keep it simple, keep it straightforward, and you will do, and I think you do a better job, particularly um, in horror and action. These are genres that lend themselves to keep the story simple, and then you can have fun with all the stuff around it. Um, for example, I mean, you said that having the simple story in the descent is what enables us to get a lot of other stuff out of it, such as you know the relationships between the characters. But also, I think thematically, there's a really interesting way that the title becomes um, has multiple meanings because it is mm -hmm. a descent away from, if you like, humanity. Because we, uh, particularly through the arc of Sarah. So Sarah starts off as a, in a way, the sort of the, the way many a narrative would end. How does this end for this woman? Oh, look, she's a wife and a mother. Yes, that's how a woman, that's the culmination of a woman's journey. Well, what if it was the beginning? And what we then see is, right, lose the family, fine. But she's got the good friend, okay? She's going to lose the friend, right? And then steadily, Sarah kind of loses her civilized qualities, her possibly even her humanity. Um, as we see her, she falls into the sort of larder of the crawlers um, and she fight and she kills a child crawler. She kills a mother crawler and she emerges out of this sort of pool of like blood, bloody water. I don't think it's just blood, but it might as well be. So she emerges out of this completely you know, stained in blood. Um, and then she is able to make, you know, put together a, like a burning torch, which, you know, she has almost this um, Neanderthal. Um, look to her at this point yeah. um, and she you know, she beats another crawler to death with a piece of bone stabs one in the eye and um, with a the deer antler um, and then in her final sort of clash um, she and Juno fighting the um, crawlers she it's incredibly visceral she kills one of them by sort of stabbing her thumbs into its eyes um, and uh, which is always a very visceral um, gruesome moment, of course, used in other films like um, 28 Weeks Later, for instance, and 28 Days yeah. Later, for that matter. Um, but and then, of course, her final betrayal of Juno, you know, stabbing him in the leg. On the one hand, is this, you know, it's, yes, it's revenge for the affair. It's also payback for Beth. But it also makes a very brutal sort of sense, because by 
um, incapacitating Juno, that means that the crawlers can feast on her and that allows Sarah to get away. So she's really discarded all pretensions of civilization and, you know, to become something that is, you know, more like and of course the crawlers themselves are interesting because they are described as being well they're human or at least descended from humans but they've adapted yeah. to life underground you know they don't they, they are blind and they hear and they just they operate by sound and they can climb anything so both the crawlers and sarah are have demonstrably gone through a descent to a more animalistic state What's interesting is that horror is often about spaces that are kept, that are away from civilization. And I think that going with the UK ending, the fact that Sarah does not escape, it's saying, yeah, this is a descent into hell, if you like, mm -hmm. into primal state, and please stay there. It's very you know, putting things away. And I think that's why, you know, and that's one of the reasons I think it has lasted because it doesn't have any particular... Um, even in the US ending, it doesn't have a particular arc of redemption. It's got, at best, survival. But even then, Sarah has still gone through the whole sort of um, descent to uh, this primal state. So, yeah, I think that, it, and the fact that, and the reason that the film can, be, can work that way, can have those sorts of layers to it, is, you know, aided by its simple story. We don't need to be bogged down in detail. I thought that was br brilliantly, brilliantly sad. And... Oh, well, thank you. No, <laughs> I, kind, I'm just sir. like... Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm not contributing at all. I'm just sitting here listening. I'm like, yes, yes. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I need to be talking too. But no, I <laughs> loved that. Uh, I thought that was brilliant. There's nothing meaningful I can add to that. So I'm just going to move on and we'll get to the titular question okay. of the show. If you find yourself caving with your best buds and you accidentally find yourself in the caverns of the descent, would you die? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's two ways there's two ways of approaching this. If, you know, would I die in the descent? Well, firstly, uh, well, no, because I wouldn't go down the cave. Right. But if I've gone down the cave, yeah, I am fucked. <laughs> yeah, I will die. Maybe I can take some crawlers with me. Maybe I can do a bit of a Juno, get a bit Juno on their asses. But um, no, I do not see myself surviving. You? Here, Here's the thing. Here's how it'd go down for me. I, I would go with my friends. I'd go caving, whatever. It'd just be a fun time. And I would probably in the first cave, like break my leg and die from that. So I would die before we even get to the crawlers. <laughs> promises, promises. <laughs> yeah. Mentioning the um, the leg break, another moment um, that I yeah. think emphasizes just how nasty this film is. Holly falls down a hole and breaks her leg. That's um, what I'm thinking and, of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Granted, she doesn't die at that point. She's got to put up True. with that agony for a while. Um, and um, Sam, who's a uh, who's nearly a doctor, um, is medical trained, um, has to set the set the bone, push the bone back into yeah. the leg, um, and it's not done quickly or cleanly because that device of having a bone sticking out of the skin is a very nasty moment and it's an effective nasty moment used in multiple films but generally if it's set it's set quickly it's like right okay one two and we've got it in but not here this is messy like so much of the rest of what they experience um everything in this film is i think designed to make you go ah uh, yeah <laughs> yeah it is an absolute it is a non-stop bombardment of um 
visceral and horrific and disturbing moments. And Holly is much stronger than me because I would have just died. And people <laughs> listening be like, that's just from a leg break? Yes. Yes. I Oh, I lucky you. do it. I'd be like, okay, peace. <laughs> I'll be <laughs> out of there. If I were somehow to manage surviving up to meeting the crawlers, then there's no chance in hell for me. Like at that point, I'm just going to throw myself at them, let them finish. I, I don't want, I'm not playing this game anymore. I'm done. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that, this was a really, a really fun, a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Descending into madness with me, as one could say. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Where can everyone find you? Well, you can. Well, don't look for me in caves because I'm not going there. <laughs> um, I, d I did read uh, a while ago about um, a screening of um, the descent that was done in a cave, and I was like, "Fuck no! Fuck no! <laughs> nope! No! 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 I will watch Jaws, maybe on in, in watching the uh, yeah, floating on the on the sea." Um, one of those big screens uh, projected outside, but uh, no, no, mm -hmm. no, not in a cave, thank you. But so you can find me um, on Twitter and Instagram and in uh, Letterboxd at Dr. Gain. That's D R G A I N E. And that's where I post uh, my uh, quick reviews and links to the various things I've written. Um, you can also find my um, blog, Vincent's Views. Um, just uh, uh, Google um, Vincent's Views and you'll find me. And you can also listen to uh, my podcast, um, Invasion of the Poddy People, uh, which can be found on the feed uh, from uh, the Not Just for Kids podcast. So yeah, if you look for Not Just for Kids, you will find the feed there for Invasion of the Poddy People, where myself and my co-hosts, James and Russell, um, talk about new things, talk about old things, and uh, yeah, give um give, give movie recommendations in terms of news and uh, features and some deep dives. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Austin. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thanks again to Dr. Vincent Gain for joining me and providing those awesome insights on such an awesome film. This was such a fun deep dive. A reminder that Ice Cream, my second horror short film, which was written and directed by yours truly, got accepted into its first festival. It will be playing at the Motor City Legacy Horror Convention and Film Festival. If you're interested in seeing Ice Cream on the big screen, you can catch it the weekend of April 14th through the 16th, 2023, at the Sheraton Detroit Metro Airport in Romulus, Michigan. I hope to see you there. I just came back from Horror Hound Weekend, and I had the most wonderful time. I got to meet both old friends and new, and horror icons from Bruce Campbell to Doug Bradley. Shoutouts to friends I got to meet or reunite with who have guested on the pod, including Deandra, aka Sassy Sledgehammer, Jason Secrets, and Leah Voicey. Also shout out to the amazing Betsy Baker, best known as Linda from the OG Evil Dead, who I worked with on a short film with a friend of the podcast, Brett Miller, up at Michigan State back in 2014. It was so awesome to reunite with her, and I hope I have the chance to work with her again. Are you a fan of this podcast? I hope so, because I just launched it. <laughs> 
Patreon. Link will be shared in the show notes, but you can find it as patreon.com slash Podcast. There are monthly bonus episodes, movie commentaries, and so many more perks. Plus, you're supporting your favorite Monster Kid, yours truly. I hope you consider joining, and to you lovely souls who have already joined, I love you. On this segment of I Know What You Watched Last Week, in which I tell you about the films I've watched since the last week, I rewatched The Evil Dead, the OG, and From Dusk Till Dawn. Not much to say about those. Those are amazing, iconic favorites, and they deserve all the love in the world. I also watched My Bloody Valentine for the first time. I always thought I'd seen this one. I rewatched it? No, I've never seen this movie. Harry Warden, the the miner, he's pretty cool. Not like a child, but like a legit um, coal miner. Some cool, gnarly stuff in it. Classic 80s horror. I had a good time. I think it's actually one of the better slashers of that time period that don't involve Michael Jason or Freddy. But it was fun. Not the perfect movie. It's got its drawbacks, but that's more of like the genre of that time. Not really. I mean... You're going to put on an 80s slasher, you're going to get an 80s slasher. You know what I'm saying? But I had a really good time with that one. You can find the show's social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at What Do You Die Show. Also, now you can follow me on TikTok at What Do You Die Podcast, where it's, at this point it's become mostly shit posts and gizmo dancing to random music, I find. You can find the Would You Die YouTube show on the Three Wise Men Media YouTube channel, where you can also find professional wrestling, trailer reviews, and much, much more. The music you hear in the beginning and end of each episode is composed by my friend Josie Palmer. Next week's episode, we are switching gears from horror monsters to cryptids. And spoiler alert, we ain't talking about Bigfoot. Until next time, I'm Austin Torres. Try not to die.